I'm pleased to introduce Gregory May. Uh, he is an internationally known tax expert who has written extensively about tax and tax policy. He graduated from William and Mary with highest honors in history and from Harvard Law School, uh, where he was the editor of the Harvard Law Review. After clerking for Justice Powell on the US Supreme Court, he practiced uh, law in Washington, DC in New York for more than 30 years. Decades of work on historic preservation have given him a lively sense of the past as a tangible world, and a long familiarity with finance has helped him to decode the evidence about America's financial founding. May is the author of Jefferson's Treasure, How Albert Gallatin Saved the New Nation from Debt, copies of which are available for sale. I hope you will enjoy the read, get it signed after the lecture today. Uh, but first and foremost, please join me in welcoming Gregory May. enemy was not who Broadway thinks it was. <laughs> Aaron Burr may have shot the man, but it was Albert Gallatin who destroyed his greatest political accomplishment, his financial system. Hamilton was proud of that system. He thought that the ability to borrow a great deal of money would give the United States the financial strength it needed to become a great nation. Gallatin disagreed. He thought that public borrowing was a drag on the private economy and a prescription for political problems. <clears throat> In the first great fight over how to pay for the federal government, it was Gallatin who won. When Thomas Jefferson appointed Albert Gallatin to be Secretary of the Treasury, the Federalists who had controlled the government under Presidents Washington and Adams were worried. They had just lost the first contested presidential election in a fight so bitter that it took 36 ballots in the House of Representatives to make Jefferson president. They had also lost their majority in Congress. And now Jefferson was putting this man, Gallatin, who had been the leader of the opposition, the Republican opposition in the House of Representatives, in charge of the largest and most powerful department of the government. At that time, the Treasury employed well over 90% of the federal civilian payroll. It was in charge of everything from taxes and spending to lighthouses and the Postal Service. It had agents in every seaport. The man who was put in charge of all of that, the Federalists thought, could do an awful lot of damage. The Federalists knew this man Gallatin all too well. He was a foreigner with a bad accent, a tax rebel, and a dangerously clever man. It was objections to Alexander Hamilton's financial system that had sparked the Republican opposition in the first place. And this man, Gallatin, had become Hamilton's most vocal critic. His resistance to taxes, federal spending, and public debt was relentless. And now he would be in a position to turn those objections into policy. At the very least, the Federalists thought, he would starve the embryonic army and navy in order to repay the federal debt. Their vision of a vigorous American nation state would simply fade away. 
much of what the Federalists were saying about Gallatin was true. He was a 40-year-old immigrant from Geneva. He had come to America to seek his fortune when he was 19, just a year before the battle at Yorktown. By that time, the Revolutionary War had destroyed much of the American economy. American incomes had fallen by 20 to 30 percent, and a depression that followed the war, which was probably more severe than the Great Depression, lasted for almost a decade. Gallatin struggled to find footing in those circumstances. He eventually settled on the frontier south of Pittsburgh, in a place so remote that a settler's petition called it the ends of the American earth. <laughs> he speculated in land, he farmed a little, he kept a store, and he tried to manufacture guns and glass. But none of that had quite worked. None of that had quite set him on the path to the fortune that he came seeking. Yet his talents had not gone unnoticed. An aristocrat by birth and education in Geneva, Gallatin became a radical Republican by conviction, one of those freedom-loving anti-federalists who thought that the federal government being formed under, under the new constitution was going to be too strong and too remote from the people. Local worthies in the backcountry sent Gallatin to the Pennsylvania legislature. And there, he showed a rare aptitude for public finance, a prodigious appetite for hard work, and an unusual knack at that time for getting along with men of different political persuasions. He married Hannah Nicholson, the politically savvy daughter of a feisty naval officer called Commodore Nicholson, who had been uh, the uh, senior officer in the Navy during the Revolution and then become a leading Republican organizer in New York City. And it was indeed a tax revolt that had brought Gallatin to national attention. Six years before Jefferson became president, thousands of men in the Pennsylvania backcountry took up arms against Hamilton's tax on distilling in what we now remember as the Whiskey Rebellion. They burned the local tax collector's house, they robbed the federal mails, and they marched on Pittsburgh. Although Gallatin had opposed that outbreak of violence, Hamilton blamed him and his anti-federalist friends for the protests that had sparked it. Washington called out the militia. And Hamilton led the troops into Gallatin's home district to arrest him. Gallatin managed to slip away to safety in Philadelphia while the soldiers were thrashing the woods to find him. But his nearest neighbor out there wrote to tell him that there never was more industry made by any set of men than was made by them that was here to get hold of you. <laughs> Gallatin's opposition to the violence won him an unexpected election to Congress in the wake of the uprising. And once in Congress, he quickly proved his worth to the Republican opposition. Gallatin gave bite to their objections to Hamilton's system for funding federal deficits. There was nothing particularly innovative about that system. Hamilton had borrowed it from the British. But from the perspective of Republicans like James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, that was the problem. They thought that Hamilton's system was tainted with British tyranny. They thought it made ordinary people pay obnoxious taxes in order to sustain a mounting deficit 
and a growing military establishment. That was just the sort of thing that had led Americans to revolt against Britain. And it already had provoked tax rebellions in Pennsylvania. But Madison's efforts to oppose Hamilton's program in Congress had failed because neither he nor the other Republicans in Congress knew enough about finance to resist Hamilton. Gallatin's grasp of finance finally put the Republican opposition on equal terms with the Treasury. And Madison was soon reporting to Jefferson that Gallatin was a real treasure. From the Virginia hilltop, where he had retired after he left the Washington administration, Jefferson wrote back that Mr. Gallatin will merit immortal honor if he can reduce Hamilton's chaos to order and present us with a clear view of our finances. The accounts of the U.S. ought to be as simple as those of a common farmer. Well, perhaps few farmers read it, but Gallatin wrote a book to explain where he thought Hamilton had gone wrong. The book was a partisan production, but it was not like most other political tracts of the time. It did not sling Republican slogans about political corruption and closet monarchists. Instead, Gallatin used the liberal economic ideas that he found summarized in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations to make the case for fiscal reform. Gallatin started with Smith's conviction that government spending retards economic development because it consumes capital. Smith, of course, recognized that nations need governments to support the conditions for economic growth, but he emphasized that governing was not a profit-making activity. And Smith thought that military spending, which at the time accounted for virtually everything that the federal government spent, apart from the interest on the federal debt, was particularly wasteful because war destroys capital. And it followed from all that, said Gallatin, that Hamilton's system for funding the federal debt was not the blessing that Hamilton claimed it to be. Gallatin thought the system that Hamilton had created had two major problems. In the first place, he said, it made federal borrowing too easy because the government didn't have to do anything except pay interest on the bonds which had no fixed maturity dates. <laughs> Borrowing on such easy terms made spending too easy, and military spending made it more likely that the government would get into a wasteful war. In the second place, Gallatin said, interest payments on the federal debt shifted money from productive taxpayers into the pockets of the wealthy speculators <coughs> who had acquired most of the federal debt. Gallatin thought they were more likely to waste the money on imported luxuries rather than to invest it at home. The country could not reach its potential, he argued, unless the federal government cut its spending and reduced the national debt. But it was political brawls rather than books that made Gallatin famous. And the biggest brawl was the one over John Jay's treaty with the British. George Washington had sent Jay to Britain to settle differences that threatened to draw the United States into a new war with Britain that the infant country simply could not afford. The treaty that Jay sent home, however, was so unfavorable that Washington got the Senate to ratify it without ever disclosing the terms to the public. 
When they finally leaked out, courtesy of one of Virginia's senators, uh, all hell broke loose. Crowds up and down the country burned John Jay in effigy, and they illuminated their houses at night in protest. A sign nailed to the door of a Federalist house that had no candles in the window read, Damn John Jay. Damn everyone who won't damn John Jay. <laughs> and damn everyone who won't put lights in his windows and stay up all night damning John Jay. <laughs> An angry mob in New York City stoned Alexander Hamilton when he tried to defend the tree. And Gallatin's father-in-law, Commodore Nicholson, openly insinuated that Hamilton must be a British agent. When Hamilton didn't deny that, Nicholson called him a coward. Well, that left a man of honor like Hamilton no alternative. He challenged Nicholson to a duel. Their friends managed to patch things up before anyone got shot. But Commodore Nicholson despised the man that he always called Hamlet until the day that he died. Gallatin called on the House of Representatives to block Jay's treaty, even though the Senate already had ratified it, by refusing to appropriate the money that would be necessary to implement. The Constitution, he told them, gave the House the power of the purse so that the people could stop the wheels of government when the government was going astray. That was a bold position. Madison gave a long speech in the House in which he dithered over whether it was right, but Jefferson enthusiastically embraced it. Gallatin's speech, he wrote to Madison, should be printed at the end of the Federalist as the only rational commentary on the fiscal prerogatives of the House. Well, Gallatin lost this fight. The House did appropriate the money for Jay's treaty, but his opposition to the treaty made his political reputation. It also attracted unending abuse from the Federalists. They routinely called Gallatin a foreigner, and worse, a Frenchman. <laughs> and they mocked his attempts to stop the wheels of the government. A, a, a political cartoon in one of the Federalist papers at the time, a very unusual large cartoon, shows Gallatin there on the right, clinging to the wheels of Washington's chariot trying to stop the wheels while Jefferson behind him is shouting encouragement. And in the background on the left, French cannibals are invading the United States. <laughs> Years later, one of Gallatin's Republican critics complained that it was actually all of this abuse that had made Gallatin into a political celebrity. By the time the next Congress convened, James Madison had retired to Virginia with his new wife, John Adams had been elected president, Jefferson was vice president, and Gallatin was the leader of the Republican opposition in Congress. Washington condescended to invite Gallatin to dinner one cold winter night, shortly before he stepped down for John Adams. Albert reported to his wife Hannah that he had donned my best, or rather my only good coat for the occasion. Washington's dinners with members of Congress were notoriously solemn affairs, often eaten in near silence. And this one apparently was no exception. Albert wrote to tell Hannah afterwards that 
Mrs. Washington continues to be a very amiable person. Not so her husband, in your husband's humble opinion. But that's between you and me, for you know I hate treason, and there is none worse than to refuse to sing praises of the best and the greatest of men. The next four years were very tense. The Adams administration got into a low-grade naval war with France, which Hamilton and the other Federalists used as an excuse for expensive additions to the Army and the Navy. They called George Washington back to command the Army, and Hamilton got himself promoted over more senior generals to be second in command. Gallatin and the Republican opposition in Congress tried to resist this military buildup, but it was very easy for the Federalists to paint them as unpatriotic. Partisan mobs came to blows in the streets. Federalist prosecutors locked up a Vermont congressman for criticizing the administration in his newspaper. And tensions in Congress <clears throat> ran so high that some of the Republican members got physically ill and others went home. This reign of witches, as Jefferson called it, welded a firm bond between him and Gallatin. Late in life, Jefferson would vividly remember that Mr. Gallatin alone remained in the House and myself in the Senate to bid defiance to the browbeatings and insults with which they assailed us. But Jefferson did not despair of the outcome. The war fever would soon pass, he reassured a friend back in Virginia. The doctor is now on his way to cure it in the guise of a tax collector. And Jefferson was right about that. The heavier taxes needed to pay for the Federalist military spending did change the political landscape, and Jefferson squeaked to victory in the next presidential election. Fiscal reform was at the top of the agenda when Jefferson took office, and it was clear that Gallatin was going to play a central role in the new administration. No cabinet member other than Madison had more political experience or a wider reputation. And Madison had been away in Virginia for the past four years while Gallatin was leading the opposition in Congress. Edward Thornton, the British Chargé d'Affaires in Washington, wrote to tell London that Gallatin and Madison would be Jefferson's principal advisors. If they became rivals, he predicted, Gallatin would dominate because he was more decisive than Madison and more capable of getting things done. Thornton said that Jefferson could manage foreign affairs by himself, but he needed Gallatin to manage the Treasury. In fact, Jefferson, Gallatin, and Madison all got along very well together. Gallatin was different than the other two in many important ways. He was 18 years younger than Jefferson and 10 years younger than Madison. He was a small manufacturer rather than a farmer. And his experience in the egalitarian scramble of Pennsylvania politics was very different from their experience in the lesser gentry that had taken over Virginia during the Revolution. But Madison and Jefferson had worked closely with Gallatin during their years in opposition and they treated him as a political equal. The three of them were not a triumvirate, as some historians have written. Jefferson made his own decisions, 
and the other two rarely conferred on substantive issues except as the need arose. The three of them rarely met as a separate group. But Jefferson placed special confidence in Gallatin and Madison. He consulted them earlier and more often than he consulted anyone else, and everyone knew that they had outsized influence. By the time the War of 1812 revealed the deep flaws in Republican policies, it was plausible for a Federalist congressman from Boston to tell the House to lay the blame on a cabinet composed for all practical purposes of two Virginians and a farmer. <laughs> well, this is where the story usually ends. Everyone knows that there was a great battle between Jefferson and Hamilton over financial affairs. You know that it was really James Madison and then Albert Gallatin who did most of the fighting. And we all know that the Jeffersonian crowd finally won when Jefferson got elected. But what then? What did they do with their victory? Did they get rid of Hamilton's financial system? And did they have something better to replace it? We can't answer those questions without taking a closer look at Albert Gallatin. He was the man who tackled the arrangements that Hamilton had put in place, and the changes that he made were profound. Hamilton had never made provision to repay the government's debt on any, on any particular schedule. Gallatin committed to repay a fixed amount of the debt each year, and he gave that payment priority over all other federal spending. Gallatin also insisted that government should never spend more than it earned, except in wartime. And he got rid of the internal taxes, such as, such as the tax on whiskey, and he abolished the Internal Revenue Service. He paid for the government with revenue from import duties. Import duties had always been the principal source of federal revenue, and ordinary citizens tolerated them more easily than they tolerated the internal taxes because in what was still largely a subsistence economy, most ordinary people bought very few imported goods, except for salt. Gallatin recognized that the government would need the internal taxes in wartime, but he thought that ordinary citizens would pay them more willingly when the need was obvious than if they had to pay them during peacetime. Hamilton was irate. He wrote a long series of newspaper articles, which he signed with the name of a Roman consul who's remembered for hating foreigners, in which he lambasted Gallatin and the other Republicans for pandering to the people and destroying the financial arrangements that were needed to make the government strong. He said that practical politicians knew that the government should use its fiscal powers to encourage national prosperity. He claimed that Gallatin's obsession with debt repayment would sink the government and slow down economic development. Indeed, Hamilton sneered, Gallatin's reforms would not even have been possible if Hamilton himself had not already stabilized the government's finances. All of these reforms, he wrote, were the measures of little politicians who now enjoy the benefits of a policy which they had neither the wisdom to plan nor the spirit to adopt. 
But Jefferson was delighted with what Gallatin had done. The financial path ahead of us is so quiet, he rhapsodized to a friend, that we have scarcely anything to propose to Congress. Some might carp, he said in a swipe at Hamilton, that it was they who raised the money that made it possible for us to pay off the debt. But we never charged them with failing to raise money, only with the misapplication of it. And after giving back the surplus, he wrote, we can do more with a part than they did with the whole. And Gallatin did continue to manage <clears throat> the government's money very well. For his first 11 years at the Treasury, he financed the Louisiana Purchase, and he repaid nearly half of the debt that he had inherited. Peace, economy, and riddance of public debt was Jefferson's mantra, and Gallatin had tried to turn that into a reality. But Gallatin's frugality <clears throat> had a heavy price. The United States was a weak young nation on the fringe of an Atlantic world dominated by Britain and France. And for the first 25 years under our federal constitution, those two great powers were at war with each other. The war, which lasted until Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo, was one of the largest military conflicts in human history. America's distance from Europe gave the United States some breathing room, but not enough. The United States had a long and virtually indefensible coastline, a vast and largely ungovernable interior, and most important of all, an economy that depended on the export of food and raw materials across the Atlantic to Europe. Once Britain and France decided to disrupt trade in order to weaken each other, the collateral damage to American interests was unavoidable. <coughs> Yet despite that obvious danger, Gallatin insisted on giving repayment of the debt priority over military preparations. It was an expensive decision. The United States' inability to stop Britain and France from interfering with Atlantic trade prompted the Jefferson administration to adopt a ruinous and short-lived embargo on all foreign trade in order to protect American shipping. And when danger to American interests finally pushed the United States to declare war on Britain in 1812, the federal government was not prepared. It had 7,000 men in the Army and 17 ships in the Navy. Its revenue depended almost entirely on taxes from Atlantic trade, which the war would strangle. Congress rejected Gallatin's call to reimpose the internal taxes that the Republicans had repealed, because Congress thought that imposing new taxes would make the war unpopular. And lenders, many of whom were New Englanders opposed to the war, hesitated to give Gallatin the enormous loans that he required because they thought the government would be unable to raise the taxes necessary to repay them. The consequences were predictable. All three of the American attacks on British Canada during the first year of the war failed miserably. Tax revenues plummeted and the federal debt skyrocketed. The Treasury started to run out of money. 
Gallatin left for Europe to seek peace with Britain. After he left, Congress did reimpose the taxes that he had requested, but it was too late. British troops invaded Washington and burned the public buildings. And while American defenders were able to drive the British out of Baltimore Harbor and off of Lake Champlain in New York, American forces made little progress elsewhere. And after the British invasions, the government's financial situation grew even worse than its military prospects. The Treasury ran out of money, and the government defaulted on its debts. John Epps, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee and Jefferson's son-in-law, dutifully reported the default to the House of Representatives, which sat huddled together in a small room in the only government building that the British had spared. When he finished delivering the report, he flung it on the table and turned to a nearby Federalist congressman and asked whether he and his party would like to take back the government. No, sir, replied the man, not unless you can give it to us in the same condition we gave it to you. <laughs> a congressman close to, to Gallatin put the problem quite succinctly. Disgraces and taxes, he wrote, will not suit any nation. The peace treaty that Gallatin sent home said not a word about the trade grievances that had started the war, but timing is everything, and the treaty got to Washington <clears throat> just days after the exhilarating news of Andrew Jackson's victory over the British at New Orleans. It suddenly seemed to most Americans that they had won the war. One of Gallatin's protégés in Congress struck the upbeat theme. Who does not rejoice that he is not a European? He asked. Who is not proud to feel himself an American, our wrongs now revenged, our rights now recognized? Well, none of that was true, of course, but in the great sense of relief that followed the war, <clears throat> it felt true. Younger members of the Republican Party, such as Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun, who was then a leading nationalist, took a more <clears throat> sober lesson from the war. They wanted Congress to start spending money on measures that would make the country stronger. They pushed for a larger peacetime army, roads and canals into the American interior, a national bank, <clears throat> and higher tariffs to encourage domestic manufacturing. Those measures horrified Gallatin's old political friends who clung to the frugal Republican principles of their days in opposition and under Jefferson. But Gallatin himself <clears throat> quietly supported most of those measures. During Jefferson's administration's, he, uh, administration, he had prepared a detailed report and plan for building federal roads and canals when the country was able to afford them. And just before the war began, he had tried unsuccessfully to convince the Republican Congress to recharter the Bank of the United States. Gallatin thought the experience of the war showed the wisdom of those measures. Under the austere old Republican system, he told a friend, we were becoming too selfish, too much attached to making money, and too much confined in our political feelings to state and local interests. 
He wrote that the war had renewed the national feelings that waned after the revolution, and he thought that that was a good thing. But a financial panic in 1819 gave the progressive Republican post-war agenda a staggering blow. The economy crumbled, money was short, and voters got testy. The Republicans in Congress <clears throat> reverted to Gallatin's frugal old ways in order to balance their budget and keep farmers happy. Andrew Jackson's presidential victory <clears throat> nine years later clinched this switchback in policy. Jackson ran for office as a man of the people, committed, committed to the old frugal Republican ideas of retrenchment and reform. And he meant what he said. He stuck to Gallatin's policy of fixed annual debt repayments. And 20 years after Gallatin had left the Treasury, Jackson could prove that the, <clears throat> that the federal government had repaid the last dollar of its debt. Well, the federal government has never again been free from debt. <laughs> but Gallatin's culture of fiscal responsibility kept the level of public spending in check throughout the 19th century. In peacetime, the federal government paid most of its bills with import duties that were effectively invisible to most ordinary Americans. And when war required borrowing, the government tried to reduce the war debt when peace returned. Modern progressive Republicans put a statue of Alexander Hamilton on the south side of the Treasury Building in the early 1920s. But it's this taller statue of Gallatin that dominates the front of the building beside the White House. That's no accident. For most of American history, Hamilton was no hero. He was remembered, perhaps unfairly, as a big government elitist. Gallatin was remembered as a man of the people who had kept the federal government under control. So why don't we remember Albert Gallatin today? At the end of Jefferson's first term, a prominent Virginia Republican named John Taylor, a man so stalwart in his Republican beliefs that he was a sort of conscience for the rest of the party, took a few minutes to reflect on what we might call the media value of what Gallatin had done. Brilliant as they are, he told one of Jefferson's neighbors, there's a certain counting house duskiness about those changes that will rapidly consign them to oblivion. Well, John Taylor was right about that. But he never meant to minimize the importance of money in American political life. In fact, he believed that public finance was the beating heart of American politics. Jefferson's lofty political sentiments were all very well, he told James Monroe a few years after that. But it was extreme folly to suppose that the bulk of the people are influenced by abstract political principles. Why, that had never been the case in any nation. What brought the Republicans to power, he wrote, was the taxes imposed by the Federalists. And what kept the Republicans in power was the taxes they had repealed. The United States today is quite different from the emerging young nation in which Albert Gallatin and Alexander Hamilton lived. We have a highly developed economy and a very complex financial system. 
We long ago embraced central banking and deficit spending as matters of public policy. And although the fiscal debates of the founding era still resonate, our world obviously resembles the one that Hamilton had in mind far more than anything that Gallatin anticipated. But that's what makes Gallatin so important to our understanding of the political turmoil during the American founding. It's through him that we can understand what the fuss was all about and why it took nearly 100 years for the, the nation and the government to accept a federal financial system that we now take for granted. No one would pretend to understand American politics without knowing who pays taxes, what the government does with the money, and how people think that affects the economy. So if we want to know what happened in the early republic, we need to know about Albert Gallatin, the man who was in charge of Jefferson's treasure. But that was not the majority of the debt. Um, about 70 to 80 percent of the debt was represented by the bonds that Hamilton issued when he refinanced the debt. He didn't pay it. He called in all of the claims, many of which were informal, difficult to prove. They were chits that had been given to farmers for confiscated goods, all sorts of things. And Hamilton refinanced all of that by issuing a set of bonds. And virtually all of those bonds were owned by Americans. Um, the reason that Hamilton's financing became so politically controversial and continued to be so politically controversial was that um, most of the bonds, not surprisingly, were owned by a relatively small number of wealthy people. And when he decided to repay the debt at face value, even though it had been trading were 10, 15, 20 cents on the dollar. Um, that resulted in an obvious massive transfer of wealth from ordinary taxpayers to the speculators who had bought up the debt. And, th and that's the main reason that his refinancing system sparked the Republican opposition. Is it because um, Gallatin um, and Jefferson uh, initiated the, the, the dollar based on the metric system that uh, their staying power, at least for some 
components of their monetary uh, formula survive today and why isn't Gallatin on uh, a dollar bill or something? <laughs> well, he, he, he was on the $500 bill in the 19th century, but, but that was one of those big bills. $500 is a lot of money in those days. One of those big bills that didn't circulate. It was used uh, to make payments from bank to bank. Um, Jefferson and Gallatin don't really get credit for the metric system. Um, although Jefferson was a great supporter of, of, of other metric conversions and general adoption of the advanced French systems for measuring things. Um, but they, they did um, rationalize um, the Mint, which had been losing large amounts of money under the Federalist administration. And um, the result of that was uh, perhaps unfavorable meant that most of the money that was in circulation in the United States throughout um, the early part of the 19th century was paper money issued by banks that theoretically was convertible into gold and silver in the specie at statutorily defined ratios. But because these state banks in particular were not subject to much regulation after the Republicans um, weakened the Bank of the United States during the, the War of 18, just before and during the War of 1812. No one quite knew what a, a particular dollar was worth. And when the Bank of the United States was rechartered after the war in 1816, uh, we had a period of more uh, stable, rational monetary policy, which um, Andrew Jackson, you know, the, the great and destructive Republican, uh, ended by destroying the Bank of the United States. So for most of the 19th century, American money was stuff printed by unregulated state banks. And there were actually guidebooks to tell people what a particular banknote might be worth. It, it was a remarkably chaotic system. At one point, the uh, governor of the Bank of England uh, wrote to Gallatin, who was then in retirement and a banker himself in New York, to ask him how a system like this could possibly work. And it's sort of amusing to read Gallatin's response <clears throat> where he tries to put a good face on it for, uh, for the, the British counterparts in American trade. But about the same time, he wrote privately to a friend to confess that uh, the bottom line was simply that ordinary people wouldn't tolerate a more centralized system. And that's why we really didn't have a central bank and a rational monetary system until the early 20th century. Did he have any role in the uh, Louisiana Purchase? Yes, he did, um, just in financing. <laughs> Uh, the, the purchase, as you, as you know, was sort of a surprise to everyone because um, <clears throat> Jefferson had sent uh, Livingston, Robert Livingston and James Monroe to Paris in order to buy New Orleans port, the sort of chokehold on the Mississippi, which was the key to the export of agricultural commodities being produced in the American West, what we now call the Midwest. Uh, and Napoleon, who needed money so he could resume 
his war with Britain, offered to sell all of Louisiana unexpectedly. Well, Gallatin uh, had suggested to James Madison, who was Secretary of State, that the best way to finance all of this would be to issue new bonds in the United States to Americans, the cheapest way to do it. Um, but the, the French talked Livingston and Monroe into authorizing a new issue of bonds in Europe that would be sold to two uh, European banks, the Hopes in uh, Holland and the Barings in Britain. And um, it turns out that uh, this $11.25 million worth of bonds, an absolutely staggering uh, amount of money, <clears throat> was then sold, uh, taken by the French government and sold at a discount to the banks for only $9 million. And Gallatin thought <clears throat> that it was pretty clear that the Frenchmen who negotiated the treaty were participating in that discount, shall we say. And although he left no written record of it, John Taylor, that good old Virginia conscientious Republican, wrote a, a private letter to Monroe that said that some people in Washington thought the treaty had let the Frenchmen who made it be paid rich by it. <laughs> the rest of the price, another $3.75 was paid by the federal government's assumption of claims that Americans had against the French for uh, uh, destruction of American trade. One last question, far back. Uh, yes, sir. This may be beyond a little bit of your uh, purview, but um, Gallatin was instrumental in the Lewis and Clark expeditions. In fact, was it the Three Forks in Missouri named for Gallatin, Madison, and Jefferson? Was his participation more about trying to understand how vast the resources this country might have uh, to become the assets of the country? Or is there anything you can comment on that? Sure. Um, well, the fact that the three rivers that create the Missouri River, the three rivers that come together in Montana to become the Missouri, are named after Jefferson, Madison, and Gallatin is no accident. They were the three most important people in the country at the time. And that's why Lewis and Clark uh, named those three rivers after them. Gallatin was um, involved in preparing Lewis and Clark's instructions <clears throat> because Jefferson consulted him uh, and Madison about everything, really. And he sent uh, Gallatin the set of instructions that he had prepared for Lewis and Clark. And Jefferson's instructions were mostly inquiries into scientific things like plants and animals, and, uh, the nature of the mountains, and whether there might be a water passage to Asia through the Northwest. And Gallatin wrote back this very interesting letter in which he, uh, in which he told Jefferson that those things were all very interesting but not very practical. That what we needed to be thinking about was the fact that the United States might have to occupy Louisiana if the British tried to seize it during their war with France. And so what we really needed to know was how friendly the native tribes were, who might be possible allies, where uh, Americans could settle, whether where the soil was fertile, and so on and so on. And uh, so those 
really practical instructions and a big part of the report that Lewis and Clark brought back were due to Gallatin's suggestions. Thank you.